Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. History never repeats itself, but it rhymes, said Mark Twain. In which case, can we truly learn from history? And if we can, do we? Here on The Rest is History, we like to focus up very close on Bronze Age Anatolia or the summer of 1981. But we also like to focus on the truly big questions. And for big questions, we need a big historian with a big brain. Dominic Sandbrook. Good to have you back. A big head, anyway. Listeners, <laughs> listeners yes, yes, a big head. Listeners, you can feel free to write your own jokes in as well. <laughs> Dominic, how's your week been? In mourning for Maradona? I know you're a big fan. Uh, I am sad about Maradona, actually. Maradona was a great character, and I do think he was a great... Oh, gosh, we did greatness, didn't we, in our first episode. I do think he was a great... He's a great figure, isn't he? He's a great figure in Argentine history. He's a great figure in footballing history. He's probably the greatest footballer in terms of dragging his team to the World Cup. So, yeah, I am in mourning for Maradona. Maradona the Great. Right, before we get to our topic for discussion today, let's check out some of your comments on last week's podcast, in which we travelled back to Troy and discussed what makes it such an enduring legend. Brilliant comment here from listener Fergus Michael John. Don't we all like Hector because he's a real hero, not divinely protected like Achilles? Yeah, so Achilles is a cheat. He doesn't spend his time sulking in his tent. He fights for his people. We can't be Achilles, but we could aspire to be Hector. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that Hector behaves very well in the Iliad, doesn't he? I mean, he sort of, you know, he's a, he's a noble hero who says goodbye to his wife and child and he goes out to do his bit for his country, as it were, or his city. He, there's not all this kind of moaning and groaning about slave girls and crying and just sort of being a bit of a wet blanket like Achilles. Do you not agree? Uh, no, I, th- I, think, I think the fact that Achilles is appalling is precisely what makes him such a brilliant hero, actually. I think he, uh, he, he's so great that he doesn't have to be held to normal standards. Oh, that's, that's terrible. This is for, yeah, I can see why you like John Lennon. Right, uh, <laughs> Mikhail Tavaridis, he said, A great episode about a great topic. I think the Iliad is the best book for opening the gates to further interest in mythology and history, not only of the Greek variety, at least it was for me. Was the Iliad a big gateway for you, Tom? Yeah, I think the Greek, Greek legends generally, the heroes and things. I think I, I was kind of a, a Perseus and Heracles man first before, before I got onto the Trojan War. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the gateway drug, no question about <laughs> it. Um, and uh, CBBMF, I hope I've got those initials right. Um, he contacted us to say, loved the episode Strange How Troy, f- the filmmakers of Troy, failed to realise Achilles isn't a hero to the modern world. So he's agreeing with you, Dominic. A sullen, capricious glory seeker. Everyone rooting for Hector because he comes out with the Christian virtues you mentioned. That's me. So good. <laughs> he's agreeing with both of us. <laughs> That's the kind of response we like. And we've got a Pepine Lucker who said, uh, not one, but two Duran Duran references. Excellent. Yes, they, uh, those references were like a, a river twisting across a dusty land. Oh, Tom, let me bring you back to planet Earth. <laughs> we've got to stop this. We've got to, we've got to cancel this. Right then, we're having our very own existential crisis this morning, and it's not about Duran Duran references. It's about the big one. Does history matter? Do we learn from it? Can we learn from it? Um, Dominic, I want a thousand words on the subject by the end of this podcast. 15 mark question. Actually, now I'm going to give you 30 marks because it is a very difficult one. Oh, that's kind. Thank you. Um, does it matter? Do we learn from it? Can we learn from it? 
we don't well we we learn something but we don't it doesn't make us better and it doesn't furnish um neat moralistic lessons i think now the idea that there's lessons in history i mean that goes back to the greeks and the romans doesn't it so you think about plutarch's lives i come on we haven't even we're not going to get into christianity (laughs) yet by the way let's shelve that until the second half at least if maybe say christianity for the extended edition which you can send to your personal followers on some sort of dark web link um but uh is there are there neat lessons no there aren't people draw the lessons i think they want to draw don't they i mean i don't think there are nobody ever draws a lesson from history they didn't want to draw in the first place um I think there's a confused mass of stuff and people impose their own patterns on it and they tease out that they seek justification in history for what they wanted to do anyway. That's my short answer. So when you say when you say confused mass, um, I I think that the the lesson we learn from history is the one that Gregory of Tours famously opens his history of the Franks with when he's writing in the late sixth century. It's the, the, the best opening, I think, not just any history book, but any book ever. And he says, a great many things keep happening, some of them good, some of them bad. <laughs> that's all history. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the lesson of history, isn't it? Stuff happens. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Can we say more than that? It's interesting, isn't it, that when people seek to write history, they've always generally sought to, to sort of tease out some kind of lesson. Um, so, you know, for a long time, the story of history was the deeds of great men. And what lesson can future, you know, future leaders learn? So that was why history was written in many ways. It was yeah. for sort of educated elite people to learn the mistakes of, I don't know, Mark Antony or somebody and to make sure they don't. I mean, often history is a sort of the story of the puncturing of hubris. I mean, that seems such a sort of recurrent theme. Um, now, the interesting thing is that I don't think we have abandoned that. So now I think, I mean, you see this so much in all the discussion about history and decolonization and statues and all the rest of it. Um, people want, they still look to history to furnish kind of ideological, for sort of ideological support, I guess, don't they? So they, they look to history and they say, the story of history is a series of inspiring examples and we can learn the lesson of how these people fought against oppression or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think history uh, traditionally going right the way back to the beginning and, and right the way up to the present is about um, examples that we can follow, lessons that we can learn in that sense. But uh, can I go back to the ancient Greeks? I mean, I, I know it's well, you clearly very, will, in, so. <laughs> very, very in our time to do that. You always have to start if you're in our time with the Greeks. But if you if you look at Thucydides, who um, is kind of the archetype of, of, of this kind of historian, somebody who says very deliberately that um He's, he's, he's writing this book to be a, a, not just for, for the now, but to be a possession for all time. Um, and when you look now at, say, uh, West Point or military academies or uh, foreign affairs centres in universities, they're very keen on Thucydides because th- yeah. they look at him and they say, oh, yeah, there are actual lessons here. So the classic one that's very popular at the moment in, in relation to America and China is what they call the Thucydides trap which is the idea that um, a set power, a set superpower is going to be menaced by uh, another power coming up on the tracks. So Sparta yes. is menaced by, uh, by Athens. Um, Britain was menaced by Germany before the First World yeah. War. America is now menaced, menaced by China. And so they extrapolate from this the idea that, that you can find in Thucydides, and I suppose by extension, every work of history, kind of hard lessons that can be applied in any situation. 
But I, I think that that is to certainly to misunderstand Thucydides and it's 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 to understand the nature of history generally, because actually Thucydides is never saying that the le- that I'm not, you know, he's not giving hard and cast lessons. What he's doing is flagging up situations that then will be contingent. So another famous lesson that, that supposedly Thucydides gives, um, and it is, again, it's much quoted at the moment, is um, the idea that the strong do as they wish and, and the weak have to put up with it. And this, again, is in the kind of the context of the Peloponnesian War. The Athenians are about to attack the, the, the island of Milos and, 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 and incinerate it. But the paradox of that is that, that this is going to then encourage the Athenians to invade Sicily and basically lose the war. So the Athenians mis- misunderstand yeah. their own lesson. And I think that that's, that's kind of the risk, isn't it? Is that if you, if you extrapolate hard, solid lessons from history, then you're going to misinterpret them. Well, there are some excellent examples of that, Tom. And actually, you're, when you talk about West Point and sort of military academies, um, I think they're some of the worst people at drawing these lessons, aren't they? I mean, the classic one is the um, lesson of appeasement. I mean, that's the sort of, yeah. we've talked a lot about the sort of, the way in which the world wars have become a myth and they've become a sort of foundational myth of 21st century civilization. And time and again, his sort of politicians and colonists reach for appeasement, which they completely misunderstand as a policy of sort of flabby, you know, weakness and what, or just sort of, they think that the appeasers were just cowards and that the lesson of appeasement is that you have any sort of strong man or anybody that you don't like. And if you don't stand up to them, then they will take over the world and all the rest of it. And this was, you heard this a lot in America in the 1960s, in the sort of Kennedy and Johnson White Houses, and then the sort of National Security Council and whatnot. They would sit around and they would say, we can't be Britain in the 1930s. We have to send more troops to Vietnam. We have to roll back communism. We must stand up to them and all the rest of it. Yeah, and then, of course, you heard Iraq. Of, right, Iraq. Iraq is the other time. So Tony Blair and George yeah. Bush, they talk about appeasement a lot. And they say, the lesson of history is you stand up to dictators. And Britain has its own experience of making this terrible decision with Suez. So I think that's the first time, actually, Suez in 1956, where the appeasement sort of metaphor was really dragged into action. Anthony Eden, who had lived through appeasement, said, um, Colonel Nasser, the nationalist leader of Egypt, who's nationalised the Suez Canal, he is Mussolini. He is another Mussolini. And we must stand up. He wasn't. He was just a Nasser. And I think that tendency, that the, the, the sort of lesson of history temptation is that you say Donald Trump actually is Adolf Hitler. And, yeah. you know, that, that, I mean, yeah. that, that's the sort of history repeating itself stuff, isn't it? Which I never believe that history repeats itself. Yeah, I think, I think the tendency to, to accuse your, your enemies of being Hitler is, <laughs> I, I mean, it's not so yeah. much a lesson, is it? It's a kind of spasm. It's, it's... it's a sort of knee-jerk thing, isn't it? This is how Nazi Germany started. <laughs> So maybe maybe one of the lessons of history is that uh, people aren't actually Hitler. Well, nobody is Hitler by definition. <laughs> I mean, other than Hitler. Um, but it's funny, isn't it, how people? It's a good way of closing down an argument, right? That you say, "Well, this is Nazism. This is Hitler. Therefore, evil. Therefore, we must immediately, you know, throw our hands in the air and intervene or or do whatever." Um, it's it's an interest, but it's interesting the extent to which we are kind of historically conditioned. So we can't talk about issues without reaching back to history for precedence and for, you know, you can't consider things purely on their own merit. So Donald Trump can't just be Donald Trump. He has to be compared with the dictators of the 1930s or sort of um, 19th century populists or whatever. 
there is there is another way in which, uh, again, looking back to the Greeks, you can um, perhaps people have drawn lessons from history, and that's to kind of identify patterns within it. Yeah. So, so Thucydides kind of you know he sets out the idea that um, if you study the past, you can you can draw lessons for politics. But Herodotus, his his predecessor, he 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 is, you, and you mentioned the, the importance of hubris. Basically, in Herodotus, there is this that there's this idea that history generates a pattern that you have um, people who are hungry, people who are poor, people who live on the margins, they're tough, and they see wealthy cities, wealthy empires, and these wealthy empires become soft, and the hungry, lean people can move in, and they take over, and then they become wealthy, and they become soft, and then more hungry people move in. And you get this cycle going on and on. And it's, it's interesting because that's basically the idea that you get in Ibn Khaldun as well, the great medieval um, Muslim historian, who likewise kind of traces this pattern that people on the periphery will inevitably move in on the great settled centres. Yes. Um, so does that, I mean, I don't know, do you think that there's any value in tracing those kind of patterns through history in the way that Herodotus and Ibn Khaldun did? I suppose it's kind of element of Marxism there, isn't there as well? There is. I mean, yeah, that these things are not. I mean, they're sort of structurally driven, aren't they? That you you get a. I mean, I think that 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 is a reasonable sort of. I don't think it, it's it's a stretch to say that um, lean and hungry a lean and hungry generation claws its way to power and then gives way to um, a, a sort of a fatter and and, and yes. less hungry yeah. one. Yeah. Um, no I mean. <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, just sort of viewing one's contemporaries. You can see how self-made people classically will have children who are are less driven because they're, you know, all the rest of it. And that's true of societies as well. I think you can see that. And you can see, I think it would be weird to deny that you can look at particular situations and see patterns recurring. I mean, if you were, for, for instance, if you studied both the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, it would be perverse I think. I mean, of course, they're different, but it'd be perverse to say there's no pattern whatsoever. There's no similarity at all between Louis the Sixteenth and Nicholas the Second, or between, you know, the 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 Girondins and the Mensheviks or something. But isn't 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 that because the both the French and the Russian revolutions are, are essentially generated from the same kind of ideological mulch that they that, that they're blooms from the same. You know they're drawing on. Well, I'm not allowed to talk about Christianity, but I'm going to. I mean, they're, they're, they're drawing on kind of deeply rooted Christian assumptions about the idea that um, the first will be last and the last will be first, and that there'll be a kind of millennial reckoning when the sheep will and the, will be divided from the goats and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so you don't get. I mean, but you don't get revolutions. It's about the logical revolution, though, isn't it? I mean, that's what happens in a revolution. Yeah, but revolutions are culturally specific. I mean, do you get revolutions like that in Mesoamerica or in no? I suppose I mean, that's in China fact. before before that before before Mao. I mean, I I don't think so because I think that the the lessons of history maybe yeah. they're very precise if you're looking at specific cultural contexts. But the the broader issue, I guess, is are there universal lessons that apply kind of across the entire span? No, I'd say no, not at a social level. But, but okay, so, so so looking at the Herodotus, the Ibn Khaldun idea, yeah, uh, it's it's quite, it's a very materialist idea. The idea that um, 
ultimately there are that you know that there are people who, who who live on the periphery who inevitably will come in because they don't have stuff that they want but doesn't that also work in a context though tom isn't that also historically specific that you're talking about you know they're both yes talking about a particular place the sort of yes you know eurasia yeah. and all the rest yes of it. Uh, well specifically it works i mean it works with deserts doesn't it and yeah, steps exactly. and, and the idea that you have kind of centers of urban civilization and then you have kind of peripheries but the converse of that again to turn it on its head is that very settled sedentary civilizations are likely to be more powerful than those that aren't so a, a spaniard arriving in Central America in the early 16th century brings with him thousands of years of sedentary civilization, and the Aztecs don't have that. Mm. Um, and in that context, actually, you could say that Ibn Khaldun's got it exactly wrong, that, that it's always those from the wealthy centres that will triumph. But that doesn't work, does it? Look at the Mongols. Look at the Mongols. I mean, they built the greatest land empire in history, they swept through everybody. And they were your classic steppe nomads coming to sedentary societies to sort of settled, you know, European or Asian sacking places like Baghdad, going into Poland and Hungary and all the rest of it. I mean, the, the Mongols are your classic kind of Ibn Khaldun outsiders, aren't they? They're on the margins. They're nomad steppe horsemen and no one can resist them. They are. But you could you could say that, the, that maybe the lesson of history is that um, nomads will be absorbed and essentially yeah. take on the contours of the uh, civilizations that they conquer. So, you know, I mean, the Mongols basically became Chinese. Um, and that just doesn't seem to me like a very, compa- I mean, a very surprising or compelling lesson, though. I mean, that just seems to me like, I mean, sometimes a lesson from history just strikes me as plain common sense. So, for example, the point about, you know, uh, a self-made, uh, a sort of rapacious self-made man then has a lazy, spoiled, self-indulgent son. I mean, I don't think you need to have sort of poured through the records of history to work that one out, surely. But what, what about the kind of the, the Jared Diamond perspective, the, the sense that um, uh, the achievements of a given civilization essentially are dependent on material circumstances? They're dependent yeah. on what crops you may have, what, uh, what animals you can domesticate, uh, what reservoirs of, of, of raw materials you have. And that's the determinant. I mean, are, now those are lessons that, that, that Jared Diamond would say these are hardcore lessons. He would. And, and you've, you've now hit upon one of my great sort of, one of the things I really hate about history, which are Brilliant. books that claim <laughs> guns, germs, steel and whatever, 112 lessons in how democracies die, yes. how the West rose, all this kind of thing. Those books, I mean, I always associate all those books with a sort of, the airport bookstore in Milwaukee or something. And I think those are books that are for American businessmen. who They've lost their charger. They've got a two-hour flight to Kansas City. They need something to read. And here is a book that they think will give them all the lessons of history. They, they can boil it down to a 12-point TED Talk. And at the end of it, they'll know all history. They'll know what's going to happen because that's what all these books always do. They say, we have studied the past and we've boiled it down to this sort of PowerPoint presentation and now we know what's going to happen in the 23rd century. Um, and and I, I find all that stuff, in, personally, I hate all that stuff. I think it, it, it removes all the complexity and the difference about history. It sort of basically says all history is the same. There are set rules. It's like a video game. And once you work them out, you know, you'll win. And I think it's balderdash, actually. 
Well, but that's that, I mean, that's the issue with lessons of history, isn't it? Is, is that, that, that if they're absolutely solid, then in a sense, you can't escape them. They're like a kind right. of straitjacket. And that, that we're, we're just and I suppose that that's the, the, the idea that we're doomed to repeat um, the mistakes yeah. of the past. Well, what is it? Karl Marx said the people make their own history, but they don't. But they make it in circumstances not of their own choosing or words to that effect. Um, I mean, we are prisoners of history, aren't we? But I, I think it's a fallacy to think that we can identify a series of a sort of formulae by which we can, by which you know, we'll we'll avoid the mistakes of our predecessors. I mean, we, we patently one lesson from history is that people don't avoid the mistakes of their predecessors. Do you not think? Well, I th- I, I think we keep on making the same mistakes because those mistakes are kind of I- inevitable. Look, if they're part the of being human. That, that, well, so so, so 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 let's let's look at uh, Brexit. Which is <laughs> wow. ha- I feel that we haven't really touched on. I didn't see um, that coming. Both, so both sides in the Brexit debate say that the lesson of history is either that we should stay in the European Union or we should leave. Or we it. shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so so, so you choose the lessons. But I would say that, that, that in that context, the lesson of history is that we were never going to be able to make our mind up. It was always yeah. going to be a kind of split because because essentially we, we we in Britain are the prisoner of our geography. We are. Yes. You know, can't live with continental Europe, can't live without it. So that would that, that for me would be a lesson of history that we're kind of doomed to repeat this this push me pull you relationship with continental Europe. And, and you can see that looking at the way that. The course of, of, of British relationship to, to continental Europe, that seems to me a fairly hardcore lesson that you can draw. But I wouldn't go so far as to say the lesson is, yeah, we should leave or, yeah, we should stay. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. I think the lesson there is, is not so much a lesson that gives a, a neat answer as a lesson that basically says it's an open question and always will be. And, you know, some listeners might not like that because they'll have very strong views about Brexit. But if you take another example, also on the European fringe, I remember reading an article a few years about Ukraine. And the article said, you know, Ukraine has this choice of a European future or a Russian future. But the very nature of being Ukraine is you always have that choice and it's never resolved. That you're always, and that's exactly the position with Britain and, and Europe. I mean, obviously, we are European and we're part of Europe. But obviously, also, there's a lot of people who don't think, don't feel European. And Britain has always felt itself to be peripheral and slightly different and all the rest of it. And that's not a question that can, that can go away. And I, I agree with you that, but I think what's different about that lesson is that that's a lesson that is kind of open-ended. I think where I sus- why I'm suspicious of lessons from history is where they, they sort of shut the, the, the conversation down yeah. and they reduce it to a sort of very neat um, formula that miraculously coincides yeah. <laughs> with what they think. Yeah, <laughs> political prejudices. But yes, I, but, 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 but I agree. The idea of, of, well, I mean, you know, Joy said that the idea that history is a nightmare from which we struggle to wake up. I think that, that there is something there that we are stuck in certain contexts that we, we can't really break free from because of geography, because of whatever. Anyway, talking of nightmares from which we're struggling to wake up, let's have a break. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, do please remember to rate, review, most importantly, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and a reminder to get in touch with us on Twitter using at The Rest History. So no, there's no is in the Twitter handle. You can also contact me on at Holland underscore Tom, or you can hassle Dominic using at DCS and Brooke. 
or DC Sandbrook, if you want. <laughs> yeah, you said that in a very strange way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just thought DCS sounded better than DC okay. Sandbrook. I mean, DC Sandbrook, you sound like you're in the bill or something. Really? <laughs> yes, I'd never thought of that. I'd always thought that that sounded like a kind of the kind of Victorian historian who wrote like multi-volume lives of forgotten politicians. But actually, no, you're you, right. Di- no, you, you sound like a cop on the edge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In one of those kitchens that I go back to, that's empty and is very sort of starkly lit, yeah. and I eat my ready meal and contemplate the wreckage of my private life while drink catching the yeah well, while catching the serial killer. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway, I don't know, we're slaloming off badly here. So uh, let, 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 the lesson of history is, is that we can't stick to the subject. Um, so we have we actually we only put this up yesterday. We've we've had plenty of comments about it already. Um, and uh, for those of you who are new to the way we work, Dominic and I will tweet the subject of each pod the day before we record. So um, do keep a lookout on Twitter on a Thursday and do please send us your questions, your observations, indeed, your corrections. Um, all are welcome. So, um, Dominic, what comments okay. have we got? So let's go. We've got tons of comments, actually. So um, instead of us just rambling on, we should just go through them all and see how many we can get through, see if we can get through all of them. So Tomas Reyes says, he says, I feel it's a catch-22 situation where if you don't learn from history, you repeat the same mistakes. But if you do, you make some new ones. Either way, you lose. What do you think of that, Tom? Yeah, well, I, th- I, th- I think that um, the, the anxiety to avoid um, Munich is the classic example of that. Yes, that, it is. That, that it? We're, you know, politicians are so desperate not to become Chamberlain that they kind of blunder into all kinds of mistakes. Yeah. Is it not a better way of thinking about um, human affairs and indeed politics is to assume that you'll make mistakes? There's no way to avoid them. And you're just, rather than being obsessed with the idea that there's some sort of perfection, you know, which if you only find the rules, you'll be able to... Yeah. You'll be able to I mean, that seems to me a very foolish way for politicians. I mean, politicians do that, don't they? They... they they pretend infallibility when they're in opposition, um, and then uh, and then it all becomes terribly complicated when they get into office, which they yeah. miraculously wasn't yeah. beforehand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think this obsession with repeating mistakes. I mean, why don't you just assume you're going to make lots of mistakes because you're human? And end of story. You don't need to then read yeah. any history books ever again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're doing yourself out of a job there, Dominic. Yeah, that's foolish. I'll, I'll shut up. Okay. Well, you, you thought that was a big one. The next the next one is is massive, and it's from. Chet Archbold, do you think we see human nature through history that transcends specific places and time? And I guess that's what we were kind of fencing around in, in the first half. And the idea that, that history can be become basically a kind of a, a branch of science. I mean, it's been, yeah. it's been very much in the news. There's, so there's a, a, a guy in, um, in America, I think he's, he's originally Russian, called Peter Turchin, who was a specialist in pine beetles. Um, and he has now applied... His, his methodology in studying pine beetles to Homo sapiens. And he's been in the news because he, I think, ab- about a decade ago, predicted that 2020 was going to be a terrible year where everything fell to pieces. Um, and he was able to arrive at this conclusion by his study of human nature. And there's, there's something very kind of science fiction about that. The famous example mm. of that is uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, where there's a guy called Harry Seldon who uh, uses it to predict exactly what is going to happen in the future. Um, and his predictions do indeed hold out for, I think, you know, several centuries and then it all goes wrong. But but it is a kind of common fantasy. I think the the idea that if only we can identify what human nature is and apply it to the study of the past, then we can work out what the future will hold. I think we can work out what human nature is um, or we can get a good sense of human nature 
through studying history and indeed through, I mean, you can get a sense of human nature through being a, you know, a child in a playground, just looking around. And, and history is actually not so different. Predicting the future, I think that's all complete balls, actually. Um, but human nature, I, yes, I think you do learn about human nature from history. I mean, I really do feel that reading a lot of, because one of my jobs is as a, you know, I review a lot of history books um, for the Sunday Times, different periods. So, you know, I'd read dozens of books a year, not on my specialism. And one thing that really strikes me, I mean, that they have made me much more pessimistic about the human condition, because in so many of these books, people just behave terribly and kill each other and and all the rest of it. And um, I think, you know, studying history makes you much more, it should make you more humble, sort of politically, you become much more aware of your own minuscule role in life's rich pageant. And um, gives you a sort of sense of perspective about the, the issues of the day and all that kind of thing. Don't you think, Tom? Don't you think when you're studying the Persian Wars and all that the business? I, what I find is is um, how various and contingent human assumptions are. And yes. uh, again and again, where you think that there are kind of certain core irreducibles, they turn out not to be at all. Um, you know, attitudes to something as basic as as, as sex or love or it's all so culturally contingent that that actually the kind of the idea that there is a human nature that can be redeemed from Mm. the flux and the swirl and the specificity of 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 culture is something i don't really hold although having said that i mean i think there's um this uh this this guiding principle that i think mi5 have that uh britain is four meals away from anarchy so (laughs) i think that's true i mean i think a lack of food I definitely always feel that way. That, that, that kind of thing. Okay, well, that's the relationship of human nature to history dealt with in two minutes. Let's move. Have we got another one? Maybe slightly easier. Uh, yes, this is a much easier one. Always look a gift horse in the mouth, says Mark Goodhouse, because there might be Greek warriors inside ready to sack your city. Do you oh, agree yeah, with that? That's very good. Um, yeah. Uh, here's another one, particular relevance to, to ancient history. Um, Mike McKay, never make your bodyguards unhappy. Uh, that's just that's, not true of i mean that's that's not that's not just true of you know caligula or somebody is it it's true of no, it's so true of caligula though it's so true, it of is true of caligula of course it is true of caligula but it's also true of you know it's true of any modern president or prime minister never make your courtiers never make your your associates unhappy and especially if they have weapons of some one kind or another you know they might not be literal weapons then you're a fool to I mean, do you need to study history to work that out maybe you do well, uh, I, I mean, I suppose the difference in, in modern society is that um, your, your bodyguards are more disposable because they don't have real weapons. So Boris Johnson getting rid of Dominic Cummings, uh, lots of people think that's a good idea. Yeah, whereas if Cummings was armed. Yeah, but if, well, yes. And I mean, Caligula laughing at his bodyguard because he has a woman's voice. That's foolish. Because the bodyguard <laughs> has a sword. Yeah. So I think there are, there's a slight difference there. Anyway... Yes. Um, That's an eternal lesson, maybe. So now we've got I buy high and sell low. (laughs) And he's got a very pessimistic lesson. Nothing lasts, he or she says. Anything can become a ruin given enough time. People are just small waves on a deep, quiet river. Gosh, this is very Ozymandias, isn't it? Um, And completely true. Yes. Nothing lasts. No. I mean, isn't that an extraordinary thing? I'll tell you what's a funny thing is how everybody assumes that... um, I mean, people have all these kind of assumptions that they say. People assume that all our current nation states, for example, are sort of, you know, they're kind of historical absolutes. 
that will last forever. France, there will always be a France and whatever. One day there won't be. And that a lot of people say, oh, how can that be true? But of course, nothing does last. Nothing at all. Yeah, and um, that, that's a very um, religious perspective, the idea that... Um... Here we go. <laughs> no, <laughs> the idea that, that, that human life is, you know, is brief. It, it, it comes and it goes. And by oh. extension, human empires are, are, are brief as well, and they are caught up on the flux. And there is a counterpoint to that. What's lasted longest? China? Iran? Yeah, I think, I think um, uh, China is the kind of the great countercultural example to the assumption that we have in the West that, that empires rise and are, are destined to fall. Because yeah. although China has repeatedly receded and been conquered and um, seemed to fall apart, it's always reconstituted itself. It's, as we were talking about earlier, it's always absorbed those who conquer it. And I think you can recognise that China in the 21st century is, is very much an empire in the way that it was back in the days of the, the, the first emperor. So in, in that sense, you could say, well, you know, China lasts. Yes, maybe anything um, that does. Nothing is inevitable except for death taxes and the Chinese empire. Okay, here's a, here's a, here's a more specific uh, point from Francis Stratford. Uh, you don't think the Germans will invade neutral Belgium a second time, do you? Okay, that's I mean, an interesting point, because actually that does take us back again to uh, the, the, the way that geography kind of channels events over and over again. And the way in which what is now Belgium, but was you know, for a long time the, just the Low Countries, the way that that has kind of been a, a, a stamping ground, I suppose, for the, the rival powers in Germany and France. I mean, that has been a kind of constant, hasn't it? Yes, and that's true, actually. And I think um, it's a weird thing how historians often don't take enough account of geography. I did a, I mean, this is going back years, but I did a course when I was an undergraduate about um, the Near East in the age of Justinian and Mohammed. And in the very first tutorial, my tutor said, you know, just he got out this big atlas and we looked at the map and he said, it's really important that, you know, like where the mountains are, where you're going to march, where the cities are, all this kind of thing. Lots of things that actually historians, particularly modern historians, don't really take massive account of. Um, And we are prisoners of geography. And to that extent, I mean, the patterns that we seek to find in history are often not to do with human behavior. They're how actually our planet conditions how we behave. And I think Belgium is a good example of that. But but the thing about Belgium is kind of it's more a geopolitical than just the, than just a geographical one, isn't it? I mean, it's it's the, the kind of the fracture line between what becomes France and what becomes Germany, which I suppose really goes back to Charlemagne's time and the. It does. There's a book about this, isn't there? Lotharingia. So when Charlemagne, you know, Charlemagne's inheritance gets divided into into three parts, and what you'd call, you know, the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, and whatnot. This sort of Burgundy. central belt. Yeah, yeah. Burgundy, exactly. This sort of central belt has always been a border zone. And we talked about Ukraine earlier, and Ukraine's a good example of that, actually. This sort of borderland between Europe and Russia. Um, and Russia's own, you know, you can't understand Russian history without, under, or, or what, the decisions that Vladimir Putin is taking right now, you can't understand them if you don't understand the geography. And the same would be true of, of Poland, I guess, historically. You know, Poland's been kind of fought over, split apart, whatever. Um, and I guess, you know, that's, that's a key argument for, um, in favour of the European Union, is that it... it, it in a way, was kind of designed to solve the problem of Lotharingia or yes. Belgium and Burgundy and that, that kind of set to stop France and Germany fighting over Alsace-Lorraine. So uh, maybe, maybe that is, you know, that's a lesson of, from history is you need the European Union to stop people fighting over it. Um, Very Romanian okay, point there, Tom. 
it's, I'm sure there are alternative lessons that we could uh, come up with to uh, oppose that. Uh, here's one from Alan Smeaton. Um, and he says, historians are pre-programmed to vehemently disagree with one another when it comes to what are facts, the interpretation of said facts and the conclusions that can be drawn from them. And I guess the implication of that is that there's there's a kind of disagreement as to even what constitutes a fact. Well, there is, isn't there? Uh, and the significance yeah. of a fact. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And I think um, that historians do disagree with one another. I mean, historians don't... There's sometimes a view that historians disagree with each other because they're sort of unusually um, sort of bitter and self-centred and um, jealous of their territory. But historians disagree with each other about the past because they're human, because we all disagree with each other about everything, and, and particularly about the past, actually. So, you know, when, uh, historians disagree with each other past, not just for sort of professional industrial reasons, but because if you ask two people to give, you know, an account of a given moment, they'll always give you two different versions. And that's the, that's the beauty of history, isn't it? That there isn't ever an answer or a single explanation. And actually, that's why we like it. And lessons are, are, don't necessarily have to be true. That's also something very important to bear in mind, that lessons can be taught and they can be completely wrong. And, uh, you know, people can come along and say, well, actually, this isn't the lesson I want to, I want a different lesson. So Yeah. Well, um, your appeasement, the appeasement example is the classic example of that, that the appeasement lesson rests upon a a sort of very simplistic um, understanding of what happened in the 1930s, but doesn't stop people. I mean, people will never shut up about it, will they? I mean, they'll go on about it forever. Poor Chamberlain. Yeah. See, I like Chamberlain. I think he's uh, hard done by. Yeah, Midlander. Yes, exactly. Like yourself. Yes. Great. Um, We've we've had a rough deal, Midlanders, in history. Except for Shakespeare. Anyway, I'm just rambling now. Um, Alan (laughs) Allport. Alan Allport says... He says, um, this is just a sort of vehicle now for me to air my, my insecurities. Alan Allport says, as I tell my students, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat the exam. Now, Alan Allport is the author of a very good uh, history of the Second World War. Um, brilliant history of the Second World War, which kicks off with Tolkien, which all histories should. Um, yes. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat the exam. Is that true? It's that, that, I mean, that's a nice joke, but it's also that idea about re- if you don't learn from history, you'll repeat it. Um, I, I, I actually don't even believe that. I think you'll you, you know, you'll make mistakes whether you learn from it or not. But there's also buried there the assumption that there is a kind of certain scholarly paradigm that if you don't subscribe to it, then you will get in trouble. And yes. you know there you know there are historians who are so great that every so often they will come along and they will shatter that paradigm. Um, and you could you know you could completely you fail the exam because you you don't give the right answer. But actually your answer could be more interesting than the conventional one that's true. expected by the examiners. That's, that, that, that was, that's always what I kind of hoped, you know, when I failed an exam. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be vindicated by history, yeah. I'll be vindicated <laughs> by history. Okay, here we've got one from um, Kevin O'Brien Chang. All the lessons of history in four sentences, this is great stuff. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad with power. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. The bee fertilises the flower it robs. When it is dark enough, you can see the stars. Golly. This, from, um, this quotation from Charles A. Beard? Is this? I'm, are they, is that from Charles, Charles A. Beard? A sort, of, yeah, <laughs> sort of American Marxist historian. Um, I don't know. When it's dark enough, you can see the stars. That sounds like a little bit like something from a greetings card, doesn't it? I mean, you've sent... <laughs> oh, God, God, God. 
quite a kind of depressive greetings. Card. Yeah, but a dark, but a, you know, a friend of yours is in hospital. You send them this. your Christmas card with, with that <laughs> kind of cheery sentiment. No, no, because I, I mean, I, I just don't believe you can see the stars. So um, I think uh, I think it was dark enough. <laughs> well, I, you know, just yeah, just well, more darkness. Yeah. Okay. Well, that. Oh, I've got a very bleak sense of human affairs. (laughs) You certainly have. Um, Well, here's one that's definitely right. Uh, Carl Glover uh, says, never get involved in a land war in Asia. And that's definitely right, because that's in The Princess Bride. Uh, What about Alexander the Great? He he won all his wars in Asia. Dominic, stop it. The Princess Bride is right. And also... uh, And there's also never go against the Sicilian when death is on the line. That's the other... Yeah. Lesson from history that the Princess Bride has to offer. I think the... the um, land war in Asia. Uh, never get involved in a land war in Asia. Of course, you're right. I mean, you know, lots of conquerors in Asia. <laughs> but I suppose the, the sense is don't invade areas of Asia where uh, you are going to get bogged down. Um, and Vietnam would be the... Yeah, Vietnam. Example. But over the course of, you know, over, over the broad sweep, basically it's a warning against invading Scythia... Mongolia, Russia, uh, this yeah. you know the steppes, the vastness of Eurasia, Afghanistan, Afghanistan yes. Um, I mean that's the, so the British went into Afghanistan in the nineteenth century, didn't they, to try and secure the border, the northwest border of India. Um, the Russians obviously went into it in the nineteen eighties, and then the coalition after two thousand and one, and they all ended badly in various ways. Um, and that is probably a good example. You know, people often sort of said. Why isn't there somebody in the Foreign Office or the State Department who's really au fait with, you know, 19th century British history? But actually often there was, because often they were precisely these people that you were talking about earlier who'd been to West Point and sort of spent, you know, three years studying all these sort of ancient wars and whatnot. So, um, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, and also Russia is the big one, isn't it? So you've got Darius the Great who invades Scythia and it goes disastrous. He's the first. And then hmm. famously you've got Napoleon and then you've got Hitler. Um, yeah, I mean, Napoleon, I mean, the extraordinary thing about that is Hitler makes exactly the same mistake as Napoleon, doesn't he? Um, again, suffused with hubris. So that's your hubris lesson again. Um, and that's just not, that's just a poor winter planning, isn't it? As much as anything. Have you, Dominic, have you ever played Risk? Yes, of course. Okay, so Risk. Yeah. It's in, you know, a game of, of global conquest. Yeah. And the temptation is always to try and conquer Asia and, and it always destroys you. So the lesson of history applied to Risk, I think. I, I, I played a game called Hearts of Iron, a strategy game called Hearts of Iron, where I played as Germany <laughs> in the Second World War. And I did invade Russia because I was determined to um, succeed where others had failed. And, uh, and I failed. And how did you do? Disastrous. Did you? Disastrous. Did you get to Stalingrad? I don't think, even think I got that far. I think I was oh. just utterly annihilated. Okay, um, so, so don't, don't invade yeah. Russia. I mean, I and that that, just, that's you know, a lesson of history. If even I can't do it, then there's no hope yeah, for anybody. Okay. Okay, well, here's one, here's one definitely for you, right up your street. K. Shank's history. The cover-up is always worse than the original crime. For example, Nixon and Watergate. Uh, and you are Mr. Nixon. Yes. So that's definitely true of, of um, Watergate, because Watergate was in many ways just a sort of clownish escapade um, that didn't really work. It didn't change the election result. Had... Nixon's men confessed that they'd bugged the Democratic headquarters in this very incompetent way, they would probably have been able to get away with it, actually. I certainly think Nixon himself would have been able to get away with it. But it was the cover-up, and then the revelations that he had this taping system and he'd been recording himself, and then the revelations of what he'd been saying on the tapes. And the fact that it was so protracted over more than a year 
That's what really did for him. So he's a classic example of the cover-up kind of consuming you. I suppose as a, as a lesson, it depends what the original crime is, isn't it? I mean, yeah, because, yeah. Because, because it may well be that we never know about the crime, in which case the cover-up <laughs> actually works. Yeah, maybe history is littered with successful cover-ups that we don't even know But that's about. always the fun of, of, of people opening archives, isn't it? Is discovering the hope yeah. that you'll discover some terrible... It never happens, though, does it? I mean, no, actually, what, no. it, you know, um, if it did, it'd be brilliant. But uh, yes, I think um, it's strange, isn't it? Politicians' reluctance to apologise. I think that is a lesson from history. A quick, sort of humorous, humble apology will solve a multitude of problems. But they, people don't like doing it. Well, spin doctoring advice there from Dominic. And um, <laughs> hope that there are lots of politicians listening who may want to employ his guidance. Um, well, we said it was a big question. Uh, you know, are there lessons from history? And uh, so it has proved to be. Please do get in touch. Tell us if you have uh, lessons that you draw from history. Um, and we'll read out the best five next week. A reminder, please, to rate, review and subscribe. And a hearty thanks to everyone who has kindly done so already. We'll be back next week. See you then. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.